There's a peace I've come to know. Though my heart and flesh may fail, there's an anchor for my soul. I can say it is well. Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed the victory is won he is risen from the dead and I will rise when he calls my name no more sorrow When he calls my name, 
before my God, fall on my knees and rise. I will rise. I will Today, I'll say that. Amen. Good job. Good job. Thank you. Today, I want to preach a message on discerning false prophets. If you have your Bible, if you turn with me to Matthew 7, we're going to begin at verse 15. I'm going to set it up for a few minutes and then uh, we're going to go through verse by verse as uh, we look at this passage. This is a, a topic that needs to be preached today because what's going on in our world and what's happening in the uh, religious areas of our world today. Chuck Swindoll tells the story of an unforgettable evening when a very close friend of his ate dog food. Contrary to what you might expect, his friend was not a starving poor guy out in an alley somewhere and it was not that he was being introduced uh, into the initiation of a fraternity. It wasn't any of that kind of thing. In fact, it happened at an elegant uh, physician's home uh, near Miami. The dog food was served on really fancy little crackers. And on top of that uh, was the dog food. And then there was some imported cheese, and then there were some bacon chips, and then there was an olive uh, right on top. Uh, hors d'oeuvres a la Alpo uh, <laughs> is what you would call it. This was done uh, not by an enemy, but by a friend. The lady of the house had just graduated from a gourmet uh, cooking school. And she wanted to put all of her ability to a very stern test. And so this is what she did. Uh, after doctoring up uh, the dog food, she placed it on a really, really nice silver tray and put it out on a little table right in the middle of the room. And uh, everybody just uh, kind of rushed right up there to get it and uh, Charles Swindoll's real good friend ate all he could get a hold of. He just thought it was really, really good. He kept coming back for more. Evidently, the ladies' friends were a pretty uh, laid-back group because everyone just had a real good laugh when she told them what they had been eating. Uh, that story is a perfect illustration of what goes on in another area of our lives, namely religious deception. Every day there are some professional, phony, 
preachers, teachers, prophets, at some place in the world that are marketing their bad theology on a silver tray decorated in such a way that the people really don't know what they're eating. Their dishes are topped with the language of orthodoxy, pious religious cliches and religious buzzwords that are common to our day. They are being eagerly eagerly consumed by an innocent public that really just wants to get to know God and how to live a better Christian life. That should never happen, and certainly the Lord doesn't want it to happen. That is why the Lord proceeds at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, that's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, Right after that, he gives advice to those who do not want to be led astray. In verse 13 and 14, the Lord urges us to go through a narrow gate and on a narrow road, which leads to life, and not on a trail that takes us through a broad gate that leads to a broad road that leads us to destruction. Uh, Now, in verse 15... It is as if uh, we can see our Lord uh, standing at the fork of the road. And he says, here's the narrow gate. Here's the broad gate. And you want to go this way. You want to take this road. Let's look at our first verse, verse 15. Uh, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, They are ferocious wolves. I want to talk to you for a moment about the character of false teachers. This opening line invites very careful scrutiny because it tells us more than we might expect about those who would lead us astray. The most obvious thing, it says, that false prophets, teachers, preachers, will come. They're coming. Jesus does not give false warnings. He does not put up a wet paint sign if there is no wet paint. What he does is bases his opinion on historical reality and what was needed by the people at that time. Israel had been subjected to a steady stream of false teachers. They would come in for a period of time and cause all kinds of problems, and then they would turn and leave and go somewhere else and and try and sell their lives there. Uh, This uh, was not only happening then, it had happened before then, and it would happen after then. Jesus said on another occasion, many false prophets will appear and they will deceive many people in Matthew 24, 11. Jesus was crystal clear. False teachers, false preachers, false prophets have come and will come. 
our churches will be assaulted by false preachers. And even if the church withstands them, more will come and more will come and more will come. It's not over in 15 minutes. We need to be prepared. We need to pray for our churches. We need to pray for the religious leaders that are trying as best they can to rightly divide the word of God. We need to pray uh, that no one will come under the false spell of these false leaders. Along with the statement that false preachers will come is a more positive note. The false preachers can be distinguished from the genuine ones. Without contradicting his injunctions not to be judgmental in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Jesus encourages us to make a clear distinction regarding our preachers, our Bible study leaders, our conference speakers, our ministerial staff. These are very serious matters. But perhaps the most important thing that he tells us in verse 15 is that false prophets are those that come in sheep's clothing. In other words, they look just like sheep. These false prophets, false preachers, teachers, are not your standard heretics. Jesus' language demands that we understand that these false teachers and their teaching are extremely subtle subtle and deceptive as the hostess and her alpo uh, hors d'oeuvres. The picture we need to have in our minds, uh, therefore, should be this. The false prophet is a man or a woman who comes to us and at first has the appearance that everything is okay, everything is right, everything uh, is as it should be. The person is nice and pleasing and pleasant. He appears to be thoroughly Christian. He seems to say the right things. His teaching in general is all right. And he uses many terms that are used and employed by a true Christian leader. He talks about God, and he seems to be saying everything that a Christian would say. He is obviously in sheep's clothing, and his way of living seems to correspond with what he's saying. So you don't suspect that there is anything wrong. You think, well, everything's okay here. There is nothing that at once attracts your attention, arouses your suspicions, nothing glaringly wrong. Though there is nothing apparently wrong with the messenger. There are some things that are subtly wrong, tremendously wrong. In terms suggested by the context of the Sermon on the Mount, there is no narrow gate in this person's preaching or teaching. They never talk about that. This man's preaching is all right in that he says nothing that is untrue. The problem stems from what he does not say. He says many right things, but he also leaves out some of the most crucial points of Christian theology. 
And that makes him exceedingly dangerous. He is truly a wolf in sheep's clothing. His preaching also has another telltale characteristic. He says nothing that is offensive to the natural man. Nothing that would upset somebody that is not a believer. His message comforts and soothes and and never warns of any kind of judgment. He wants everybody to speak well of him. There's nothing to make anyone uneasy in any of his sermons, but rather only things that make the people feel good and content and, and falsely assured. The result of such preacher's work is dangerous. Jesus says they are ferocious wolves, and you need to be able to tell who they are. They would destroy every sheep in the flock if they are undetected. If false preachers came in the most evangelical churches as blatant heretics, you know what would happen to them? They would take out, the people would take out their Bibles and bang them on the head and say, get out of here, get out of here, you're telling a bunch of lies, get out of here. Well, but when they come with the right language, the right credentials, from seemingly the right culture, they deceive the unwary believer. Jesus commands us to be on our guard. Watch out, he says, for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Now I want us to look at verse 16 through 20. If you have your Bible open. Uh, He's given us some warnings. Now he tells us the tests that we need to apply to see if this is a false teacher. Look at verse 16. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes, figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a good tree and every bad tree uh, cannot bear good fruit, but should be cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, notice that he opens and closes this section of Scripture with the same phrase. By their fruit, you will recognize them. The essence of a tree is revealed in its fruit. The word for recognize here in the Greek uh, means an exact or full knowledge of. It's not something superficial. It's something that you would know thoroughly. One's fruits provide an exact, unerring knowledge of what a person really is. What have they left behind them in their work, in their conversation, in their ministry, whatever that might be, in their playtime, leisure activities? What have they left behind? 
The preacher's fruit is evident in two categories. What he says, that's his doctrine, and how he lives, what his moral code might be. Do you remember Jimmy Swaggart? Uh, Jimmy Swaggart uh, was a good preacher and a good singer. I like to hear him sing. But he was a corrupt person. And finally he got caught and he went to jail. You know Jim Baker of Jim and Tammy Faye. Big hair, you remember. (laughs) He was uh, an interesting person. uh, But he, he had moral failures. And his ministry uh, and all the plans that they had were ruined because he didn't live what he was talking about. I'd like to suggest this morning for you four doctrinal tests. First, the false prophet avoids preaching on such things as the holiness, the justice, and the wrath of God. He never says that he doesn't believe these truths, never mentions that. He just doesn't mention them at all, except maybe to give his prayers a little bit more of an ecclesiastical ring. Any exposition of these truths would be disconcerting, especially to the non-believers that might be listening in his congregation. So he just avoids them. And his people are ignorant of these essential doctrines. Second, he avoids preaching on the doctrine of the final judgment. In this regard, two of America's most flourishing cults, the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses, they reject totally any idea of hell in favor of a less stringent and less offensive approach. So what does that make them? They're false teachers. And we need to know that in case they're talking to our children or our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren and trying to draw them into their group. Some people are so uh, illiterate theologically that they say, well, just so long as somebody's going somewhere, uh, that's okay. Well, no, it's not okay. It can be terrible. This ISIS group that's slaughtering Christians every opportunity they have, they have a theology, and their theology is to kill everybody that doesn't agree with them. Kill them. Behead them, shoot them, strangle them, whatever. Just kill them. Get rid of them. Totally. And so, of course, Christians are dying in large, large numbers, as Brother Ed said in his prayer this morning. Third, false prophets fail to emphasize the fallenness, the depravity of mankind. The truths that man is sinful to the very core of his being and that he cannot save himself, those things are consciously totally avoided. Don't ever mention any of that. What they need, the false prophets say, 
is to see their full potential. Have you heard a whole lot of sermons in your life about seeing your full potential? Uh, I turn on TV every once in a while and I watch, uh, you know, some uh, preacher that's preaching. And they talk a lot about potential. You know, how we're supposed to live up to our potential. Well, I agree with that. But what they're leaving out is important. They never use the word sin in their preaching. Prophets like this do not actually believe the biblical assessment of man's predicament. They just don't believe that. We preach what we believe. If we don't preach it, we don't believe it. Fourth, false prophets de-emphasize the substitutionary death and atonement of Christ. They might talk about uh, Christ's death on the cross, but they have not the vicarious, substitutionary atonement in view. They may sentimentalize about it. They might even sing a hymn that has something about that in there, but they do not believe it. False prophets talk about God. They wax eloquent when they're talking about Jesus. Many do not uh, see these folks as heretics. They're likable, truly nice people. Pleasant to be around. Sometimes churches grow under their leadership. But the following years, the following years are tragic. A sea of unbelieving children and empty pews. About 40 years ago, I was working in a church in Dallas. And some of our members began to drive clear to South Dallas, our church was a little bit north of Dallas, they began to drive all the way over to South Dallas to go to a church where there was a whole lot of hype. And there were all kinds of things being said, and the word was out all over Dallas. This miraculous thing was going on down in in South Dallas. The history was that there was a guy that was a pastor of a Baptist church. They had about 300 members, and then he went off to a retreat with some people, and when he came back, he was totally different. He uh, began lengthening people's arms. Uh, He began curing all kinds of diseases, all kinds of problems. Uh, He began uh, speaking in unknown languages. He began uh, running around uh, the platform. He began... Uh, grabbing people and hitting them on the head, uh, and they would fall down. Uh, Just just everything was different. And people were going by the thousands, this little tiny church from 300, just mushrooming. And people began to come. And so they they moved to another facility. They rented another facility. And in a few months, it wasn't big enough. So they went to another facility. In a few months, it wasn't big enough. And so they moved to the Bronco Bowl in South Dallas. I don't know if any of you are from Dallas, but uh, back then, a long time ago, there was a place called the Bronco Bowl. It was a huge bowling alley that was just a gigantic structure. And it got to be that there were 5,000 people going to the Bronco Bowl every Sunday morning. And a number of the people that had been a part of the church that I was in 
One Sunday morning, this pastor got up and he said, well, I went to the doctor this week and he said I had intestinal cancer. He said, you know what? I waited until this morning to heal it. He said, uh, I'm going to put my hand right here and I'm going to pray. And he prayed and then he said, be healed. And then about 30 seconds later, he said, I'm healed. And everybody was clapping and jumping and uh, yelling out things. I mean, the place just went into bedlam. I mean, it was just wild. Well, guess what? The next Sunday, more people came. And the next Sunday, more people came. The problem was, about four months later, he died of intestinal cancer. And then there were thousands and thousands of people that realized that they had been totally uh, in disillusion, that, that things weren't as they should have been. And many of them, thousands of them, just dropped out of church. They said, well, you know, I got sucked into that and it wasn't right. Well, you know, uh, that kind of thing is going on all over the world. False teachers are promising false things. And terrible things happen. So much for the test of what they preach. There's also the test of how they live, the moral test. The controlling realization here is that being a true Christian means that there has been a radical change in the person through the grace of God. There is a deep connection between what we say and what we are. The essence of the trees determines the kind of fruit they're going to provide. False prophets encourage us to make ourselves Christians by adding something to our lives rather than having a basic change in the very core of our lives. It is possible to subscribe to the qualities of the Beatitudes and never really have a change in your total being from the inside. Sooner or later, we do, however, know what a man stands for. Believers are not to involve themselves in inquisitions, but they must recognize the verdict of God when it comes. True believers have been radically changed from the inside, and though they are far from perfection, though they do sometimes stumble, though they do sometimes backslide, they do manifest the character of God's kingdom in their life. There is a true ring to their spirit. There is a thirst in their lives for righteousness. Their mercy and their peacekeeping ability. They also show the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things are in their life, and those qualities are growing because Jesus is at the very core of their being. 
Believers do slip and stumble, but their fruit is real, and it flows from their inner being. Today, whole groups of people are being served things that they would never consciously eat. For the silver trays and the attractive garnishes have made them completely fooled. Here at the end of his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is warning his followers not to be superficial in evaluating prophets, teachers, preachers, evangelists, whatever. Does what these prophets and preachers say measure up? What are they leaving out? Does how they live measure up? These are important tests because false preachers are coming and are already here. They're all around us this morning. Our Lord's words can warn us not to be superficial regarding our lives. Sheep, it is a fleece that we are wearing. Is it a fleece that you have grown? Or is it a uniform that you wear? That's a very, very important question. This morning, if you're in the house, and for whatever reason you have never trusted and believed in Christ as your Savior, the call this morning would be for you to do that. To not put it off, to not say, well, I'll, I'll do that someday. I don't really like the clothes I have on today. I couldn't do it today. <laughs> you know, I'm not really ready today. I've got something to do right after church, and I don't want to be standing around talking to people. You know, I hope that we can kind of set that stuff aside, and if we have never trusted and believed in Christ, that we could make the most important decision of our life in these very moments. Today, if you're here, you've been visiting with us. You like the, the sound of the music, the sound of the sermon, the sound of the prayers. You sense that the Spirit of God is in the midst of what we're trying to do. Then come and join us and help us as we try and reach out and touch the brothers and sisters that live around us, that work around us, that are our relatives and friends. Lord, help us to have a strong ministry with those with whom we face every day. Today, the invitation is for you if there is a spiritual decision that you would like to make. I'll be standing down here at the front waiting on you to come. Let's stand together as we sing.